Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. It was early in the morning in Winnipeg, Manitoba, when the air raid siren sounded. People were woken from their peaceful slumbers by a warning. A few hours earlier, a local radio DJ had been taken captive and a radio station had been hijacked by Nazi troops. Meanwhile, more troops were working their way across the city. Within 30 minutes, half of Winnipeg was under control of Hitler's forces. The Canadian Army, under the command of Colonels D.S. McKay and E.A. Pridham, mobilized out of Fort Osborne barracks by 6.30 that morning. Streetlights flickered before going dark. The bombs started dropping by 7 a.m., and the small group of soldiers already on the scene did their best to hold the line. They built a five-mile perimeter around City Hall, but within minutes it was clear that they were no match. The Nazi forces were too strong. They blew up the bridges. A firefight ensued. German tanks rolled down the streets while anti-aircraft vehicles launched towards the sky, The first civilian casualty was announced at 8 o'clock. Soon after, Winnipeg's mayor, the premier, and lieutenant governor were all taken prisoner. An hour and a half after the battle had started, the Canadian flag at City Hall was replaced by the Nazi flag, its black swastika waving ominously overhead. German officials announced new rules for Winnipeg citizens and handed out pamphlets outlining them. For example, all automobiles and public transportation vehicles were now property of the occupying forces. All meats and produce from local farms had to be sold through the office of the Commandant of Supplies in Winnipeg. Farmers were not allowed to keep any of their output for themselves. If they wanted to eat, they had to buy it like everyone else. All Canadian flags and emblems had to be destroyed as well. Churches could not hold services. Newspapers were replaced with pro-Nazi publications. And books were burned out on the steps of the public library. It happened so quickly and without warning, nobody was prepared. Nobody except Henry E. Sellers, John Perrin, and George Waite. These three men were on the Committee for Victory War Bonds. Victory bonds were bought by Canadian civilians as loans to the government to increase the country's war coffers. As part of a marketing campaign to increase victory bonds sales, George Waite proposed a simulation of a Nazi invasion. His fellow committee members went along with it, and created IFDAY, a citywide effort to boost their war bond sales by, well, scaring the pants off their fellow Canadians. They advertised their efforts several weeks in advance, just in case someone saw several dozen Nazis marching down the streets and really thought the city was under attack. The committee also created fake newspapers with articles written in German to add to the authenticity. At the top of each paper in big letters, they had printed the words, This did not take place but it could happen here. However, to really drill the idea home that any place was vulnerable to attack, Waite and his team hired 3,500 troops from various militia groups to portray the brave Canadian Army soldiers. Meanwhile, with the help of a Hollywood costumer, 40 young men from the Board of Trade donned Nazi uniforms and goose-stepped their way down the streets of Winnipeg, intimidating newsstand operators and anyone else unwise enough to be out at 6 o'clock in the morning. 
As for the bridges, well, they weren't really blown up. Coal dust and dynamite sold the effect to the audience willing to believe that Nazis really had invaded their city. And it worked. Despite the frequent reminders beforehand that it was happening, many Manitobans had either forgotten about If Day or hadn't been paying attention to the signs. Several folks fled their homes or offices to avoid the approaching Nazis, while others looked on in horror at what had become of their city. The committee had set out to sell $45 million worth of war bonds that day. Instead, they sold over $65 million. If Day had been a success, and a shocking reminder to Canadian citizens that they weren't as safe as they thought they were. To the Greater Winnipeg Victory Loan Committee, however, World War II was just business as usual. The Martin family was on the run. For as long as they could remember, they had the freedom to live where they liked, but in the late 1800s, their options were closing down. But where some might have only seen difficulty, J. Warren Jacobs saw an opportunity. Warren was the son of a blacksmith. He had grown up traveling the Pennsylvania countryside. His father's work traveled the countryside too because he was also a buggy maker and wagon builder. The vehicles he made were sturdy, but they were beautiful too, and that's thanks in no small part to Warren. As he was growing up, it became clear he had an eye for design, and it became his role to hand-paint the scroll work on the sides of his father's creations. He was a master with the brush. A reputation as a boy artist followed him only as long as he was a boy. Soon, he was in demand as a professional sign painter and calligrapher. Once, he was hired to write the names in a big family Bible— It wasn't long before he wrote his own name in the book, because the trip introduced him to the daughter of that family, and they were married in 1897. But as we know, Warren's family wasn't the only one he was watching out for. And in the years after he noticed the Martins, he moved from simple sign painting, which never brought in quite enough money for his growing family, to a new career, construction. When he stepped in to help the Martins, he laid the first brick in his architecture empire. In fact, the house he built was so attractive, it brought their relatives, too, and he built a second. Within a few years, he had built homes for hundreds. But if you can imagine the sign painter's flair coming to bear on his new endeavor, then I'm sure you won't be surprised to hear that his home designs were not what you'd call restrained. In fact, they were ornate. Railings, pillars, arches, broad porches, and ornate window treatments— Sometimes they stretched as high as four floors of doors and windows opening out to invite air and light into a four-sided cube. His most intricate designs were sheer wedding cakes of wood and plaster, modeled on famous public buildings, a 45-room fortress with a bell tower made after Philadelphia's Independence Hall, a 66-room mansion built on the design of the Pennsylvania State Capitol. And work like that didn't go unnoticed. He had orders come in from some of America's leading figures and fattest wallets. Warren Jacobs sold pre-made houses to Henry Ford, William Rockefeller, and Thomas Edison. But these weren't just one-off buildings, because Warren had a mind for business. He had started an architecture company to sell each of these designs, and they each had a model number. If you wanted to feel like a bigwig in old Philadelphia, well, you were looking for a model number three. Photographs from years later show just how successful he was with pre-made houses stacked on top of each other in warehouses, waiting to be shipped out to customers wherever they may be. 
Warren's company continued manufacturing ornate and unusual houses until the Second World War, when materials got scarce and the nation turned to other projects. Later generations of the Martin family, though, have continued to live in houses built according to Warren's design. Although, lately, people have been noticing that not all is well in that domestic sphere. There were a few things that made Warren's houses unusual, things that made Warren distinct from the other architects and builders in his neck of Pennsylvania. For one thing, the foundations of his houses were highly unusual. Warren designed a kind of pivoting pole to go underneath them and lift them up into the air. For another, he was building his houses precisely so that the residents inside could be watched. And Warren watched closely. And he collected, too. He collected the things they brought home, and before long he had a wide-ranging gallery of bones and furnishings left behind in his houses. If that makes J. Warren Jacobs sound like the worst kind of landlord you can imagine, don't worry, it didn't go unnoticed. At one point, the feds heard about Warren's collection and they discussed passing a law to take his collection away. Not because he was committing crimes, though. No, for science. They wanted Warren's collection in a public museum. Because, you see, Warren's homes were for the birds. That Martin family? They're the largest species of swallow in North America, and their glossy blue-black feathers gave them the name by which they're known today, the Purple Martin. Today, birders around America are still working to give them homes, because they're a species that has preferred man-made homes for centuries. Today's Purple Martin landlords are still working overtime to keep that feathered family accommodated. But no one's ever done it with quite as much style as J. Warren Jacobs. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. <laughs>